Welcome to Element. If you are new, uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are also sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes and some questions to kind of reflect on what we talk about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, This is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8, and it says this, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who look at the end or the place where we would like our lives to end and to work our way back from there to who we are today. Uh, Not in terms of, of salvation or you loving us more or better, but to the place where we can honor you with our lives and to look at every day as they come along with the goal in mind of what we want people to remember about us and how we loved you when we are no longer here so that you would gain great glory by how we live our lives. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is week 18 of Ecclesiastes. In just a couple weeks, we're going to be taking a break for the summer. Uh, We do that because throughout the summer, a lot of you are hit and miss. Sometimes I'm hit and miss throughout the summer. And what it does is it enables us to come back in September and to then do the rest of the book so we have it all together. And I kind of want to give you guys as much of it as possible together so we can walk through it in a way uh, that really makes sense. Because I think Ecclesiastes is really important for us in the culture we live in today. And Ecclesiastes, it keeps coming back to this idea that satisfaction uh, with our life only happens by one way. And that's by finding ourselves and our identity in who God says that we are, by trusting him for our salvation. Now, today we have words like a secular or secularism. Uh, Those words come from an old Latin word called seculum, and it meant the now or a piece of time. It's like nowism or timeism. And And it's this understanding that Solomon talks a lot about in the book when he says, under the sun. The idea of under the sun is really that secular idea that this world, this life is all that there is. And Solomon keeps coming to, and most commentators will even tell you that the whole point of the book is to look at what life is if this life is all that there is. If there is nothing beyond us, beyond the sun, if it's all just under the sun, it all becomes meaningless. Uh, it leads to breakdowns in our lives. And so the whole point, again, is to show the view that believes that this man-made world, if God is not involved, it will become devoid of meaning and purpose. But the scriptures teach that there is good news, that there is a God, and he is personal, and he cares about his creation, and there is much more to life than what is just under the sun. If you have a Bible, open to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And in this here, Solomon's going to start making some bigger and better than comparisons in time and life. This is going to be a poem. The poem is the first 13 verses of chapter 7, so we're going to cover the entire poem that's there. And it's going to feel like I'm probably jumping around a bit, but I'm just trying to follow the poem and hopefully bring it back together in a way that it all makes sense. I might ramble because I usually ramble a lot, but you're just going to get a whole lot of me and words this morning. So let's see if we can't follow where we're going to go. So Solomon is going to show how to have have discernment in the idea to live our lives in the way of wisdom, and he does this by talking about bigger and better. Now, I understand bigger and better. I was a youth pastor for a lot of years, and we'd get high school kids together, we'd break them into teams, and we'd do this thing called a bigger and better scavenger hunt. And so you'd give each team something like a, like a penny or a toothpick or a rubber band or a balloon, and then they would go out for like an hour and a half into neighborhoods, wherever they wanted to go, and they'd knock on strangers' doors, and they would say, can I trade this for something that's bigger and better. 
And by the end of that, some of these kids would come back with like paintball equipment, a large screen TV. I think kids came back with a car once. Didn't run that well, so we tried to return it. They probably gave it to us like, oh, thank God I'm going to get rid of that car. <laughs> you a penny? Sold. Right? <laughs> Take it. But, but this is the idea of, of these comparisons, bigger and better in life under the sun. Now, comparisons aren't always good. If you compare yourself to somebody else and their life and always wanting what they have, that's not good. But if you're looking at the difference between two things in your own life or is this thing better than that thing, those are okay to do. Solomon starts off Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death and the day of birth. That's contrasting those two things, the bigger and better. It's wisdom when you look at them. That. So we're going to walk through all of these this morning. Follow along. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1, he starts off, A good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment is another word for fine perfume in that culture. And this is referring to our reputation and who we are. Wisdom helps you to live and, can, and get a good name. Solomon says this in Proverbs 22, verse 1, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Now, in this culture, people didn't have showers in their homes like we do today, and so they wouldn't bathe that often. And so scented oils and perfumes were valuable commodities so you don't stink. Uh, We probably know this. If you've ever been around a junior high boy who hasn't learned the value of deodorant, you need to teach them the value of deodorant. Like I said, I was a youth pastor for years. You go to camps with these junior high boys, and you're like, man, something died in here, and it's your armpit. So... (laughs) Learn how to use deodorant. And we would teach kids how to use it because you need the scented oil because it's terrible. What Solomon is saying is that fragrances are valuable, but having a name that people admire is even more valuable. And so we realize that everything that we say, every comment we make, every action we take is either building up our reputation or tearing it down. And if we call ourselves believers, our name and reputation is also connected to the God that we say that we serve. It's like the the cologne of good character. Philip Ryken, when he writes about this, he asks these questions. He goes, do you have the characteristics of Christ? Are you more known for being cheerful or critical? Are you known for speaking the absolute truth or coming up with stories that are hard to believe? Are you generous, generous with what you have or stingy? We are to be a people who make a good name, not just for ourselves, but again, because we are connected to Jesus. A lot of times we are people who won't even know what our character is until hard times come. And so wisdom is what you would think about. What's good, what would I do if this thing happened? What do I do if I got cut off on the freeway? How will I respond? Most of us don't think about that until it happens, and then we just react. Ah! Huh! <laughs> Slow down on them. What will I do if someone treats me really bad in the grocery store? How will I respond? What do I do if someone disagrees with me about something I hold very close to my heart? How am I going to respond? Wise people will think about those things before they happen. So when they do happen, we have a way that we want to respond in wisdom so that we would have a good name. Now, some parents, they, they take their family name very seriously. It's like, you know, my dad never did this, but it was like, you're Carlberg kids. It wasn't like that, but some parents are. It's like, you're a family name. Well, we are a people, again, who have the name of Jesus when we call ourselves Christians. Think about what would happen in the world if you talked to somebody and you said, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And they went, oh, you're a Christian. That's amazing. Christians are kind and honest and full of integrity. Oh, I'm so happy I met you. Is that how they look at Christians? No, because we're not like that. 
because we don't typically live in wisdom. And that's what Solomon's trying to stir us towards. Again, the second half of chapter 7, verse 1, and the day of death, then the day of birth. Uh, This is talking about how are we going to end, what it's going to look like. Some morbid commentators believe that Solomon is saying, well, just be glad when it's all over. But in context, what he's saying is our last day on earth will be rejoiced over when we live in a way that reflects God's good character. It's not this, whew, I'm glad that thing's over, but it's the recognition and remembrance of a life that was well lived. The the first day of our life and the last day of our life have a lot in them, but the last day is really in the end what counts. Philippians uh, 1, 1 21 to 24, Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Wise people know that death with God is better than life anywhere else, but death doesn't have to be this terrible, horrible thing. It can be a thing that's rejoiced over in gladness. I tell my wife this all the time. If I end up in some horrible accident where I have third-degree burns all over my body, please don't let them save me. Okay, just let me go. Don't let them, oh, we did such a great job. We saved this guy. Just, just let me go. i got a better hope. I even tell her that if I get to a point where I can't... Um, Wipe my own rear end with my hands. I'm like, just let me go. Let me go. I'll be okay. I've got hope in a, in a future. I mean, for Christians, we have this idea that, that life begins when we meet Jesus, and it goes on into eternity. But what that also means is we should think about what our life actually looks like as we live it out. Because we do have a greater fruition even in death. Uh, bigger and better continues. Chapter 7, verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. This again goes to this idea. Wise people will use funerals and deaths or memorials as opportunities to inventory our lives carefully. Uh, Thomas Boston wrote of Jesus, In the day of his birth he was born to die, in the day of his death he, he dies to live. Uh, death is also the idea of it's part of our entrance into full glory. Charles Spurgeon described death as the day that believers reach their port, all dangers over, and come to their desired haven. And so Solomon says that every second of every day, God has given us the opportunity to learn and grow, and these things will go into eternity. And funerals give us the reality that we are going to die. We are mortal. So how we live becomes important to think about. It goes back to that idea of our fragrance. How are we living? So let me be morbid j- just for a second here. If you are married and you actually like the person you're married to, one day one of you is going to die. I tell my wife, unless I'm driving, then again, we will both go at the same time typically but but if you if you do love them like this means you should remind them that you love them now you love them now it means that we become a people who don't hold on to petty grudges we forgive quick we go to a place where we want to know that we love them and care about them we we kiss them Uh, if you have children one day you are going to die so hang out now and cuddle and wrestle and go swimming with them unless they're like 40 and then that's weird you know but But, you know, you spend time with them because it's kind of what matters. You use time to build what you have. Solomon says, fools ignore death and just keep partying like oblivious idiots. And he says, don't be a fool. See, such great practical wisdom. Chapter 7, verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Now, this is not saying you have to never have joy, that you can never laugh. It's a phrase in this culture that's understood that sometimes fools, they go on laughing, even when there's nothing to laugh about. 
Solomon has already said in chapter 3 that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, but fools will laugh even when it's not funny. It's like a pothead who's too high to realize that his buzz has warped his worldview and that sometimes grief is good to be embraced. Some people will tell you that you just need to go through life with a positive mental attitude. Just always think happy thoughts, always think good things. But when someone you love dies or trust gets broken or your hearts get squashed, you must realize that we live in a fallen and broken world and it's because of our own choice. We are a people who constantly rebel and run away from who God calls us to be. And when we do that, what we do is we destroy the world around us. We destroy God's peace. And so I'm not saying that that. You walk around and must cry all the time like people who write greeting cards for a living or something like that, but a sad face understands the brokenness in the world. That's what Solomon is saying. And sometimes we walk through that valley of the shadow of death through a place of grief, and we know that God walks with us. And if something stinks, we're able to say, yeah, this, this stinks, and we get to walk through that. And sometimes a sad face will allow people to enter our lives and walk through those sad places with us. And it doesn't mean you need to walk around your entire life with a sad You don't need to be Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Life is terrible. Everything is bad. You don't need to be that. But when you're not doing well, it's okay to tell the truth. And Solomon just kind of keeps hitting this thing. Verse 4, he says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, I was trying to think of a way to illustrate to you this to you and what it looks like. And so I, got, I think I got a good idea about this. Uh, about 15 years ago, this book came out. It was called The Secret. Uh, and it's, a lot of Christians loved it. It was a terrible book. It had horrible theology. And it wasn't a Christian book, but the lady said it was. Anyway, uh, the tagline of this was, The Secret has traveled through centuries to reach you. It's this huge bestseller. Again, zero to do with Christianity. But the book was about having the, the secret to life, to, to health and to wealth and successful relationships, uh, even maintaining your perfect weight. The author's name was Rhonda Byrne, and she informed the world that she discovered the secret to life that was harnessed by the most important people in history. Uh, Plato, Shakespeare, Newton, Hugo, Beethoven, Lincoln, Emerson, Edison, and Einstein. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, who is always the most theological astute person in the world, says, she said, oh, the secret is life-changing, right? The whole idea in the secret is about having a positive mental attitude. That's the whole idea. The thoughts and the feelings that you put out in the world, whether good or bad, are going to come back to you exactly how you put them out there. So you always have the life that you create. Uh, Rhonda Byrne says, the creative process using the secret was taken uh, from the New Testament in the Bible. Well, let me tell you why she says that, okay? She says there's three simple steps. That is ask, believe, and receive. That's why. Well, Jesus did say that, but not how she meant it, okay? So, but Byrne uses herself as an example. She said to transform herself from overweight to thin, she thought thin thoughts and wouldn't even look at overweight people. She says, if you see people who are overweight, do not observe them, but immediately switch your mind to the picture of you and your perfect body and feel it. And as a result, she says, I now maintain my perfect weight. In the book, she writes this, the most common thought that people hold and I held to is that food was responsible for my weight gain. Who knew? (laughs) That is a belief that does not serve you, and in my mind now is complete balderdash. Food is not responsible for putting on weight. Really? Okay. It is your thought that food is responsible for putting on weight that actually has food put on weight. Remember, thoughts are the primary cause of everything, and the rest is effects from those thoughts. Think perfect thoughts, and the result must be perfect weight. You might think that sounds stupid, but she has millions of followers, even Christians who who follow this. But think about what she says. You take that to the logical conclusion, right? For fear of becoming overweight, you can't look at overweight people. Well, what about people with cancer? 
You have to avoid them so you don't look at them and catch cancer. People who are poor, you can't be around the poor because you might become poor. In other words, you have to avoid the very people that Jesus tells you to care for. Matthew 25, 45, as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. The secret says, don't even look at those people. Now, there are contributing authors to The Secret. There's a guy named Joe Vitale, and he talks about how how suffering and tragedy, people attract all of those circumstances to themselves in their lives. Uh, Way back when, Larry King interviewed him and talked about this little girl named Jessica Lunsford. Jessica Lunsford was a nine-year-old Florida girl who was brutally raped and murdered. And so Larry King says, does she attract that to herself? And this guy responds, we are attracting everything to ourselves, and there is no exception. Solomon and the writers of Scripture do not fall into that mumbo-jumbo. They don't. Solomon says those people are fools who walk around and think that way. What Solomon, the writer of Scripture, says, you don't walk around ignoring pain, just having a positive mental attitude, but when hardship and trial and suffering come, wise people will mourn. Wise people will weep. It is the foolish people who ignore it like it isn't even there. Fools will head off to nightclubs and smoke shops and dispensaries and bars to suppress their misery. Fools will drink through their problems by trying to avoid their problems. But the wise embrace reality and they will mourn because if we realize that by walking through our suffering with Jesus, we come to a place of a deeper joy, of deeper growth. This is why when the scriptures talk about feasting and drinking, it's not gluttony and drunkenness. It's, it's not, I'm depressed, so I'm going to eat. Well, now you're big and depressed. That didn't make it any better. Oh, I'm depressed, I'm going to drink. Well, now you're a drunk and you can't hold a job. That didn't make it any better. Feasting and drinking are not gluttony and alcohol abuse. Feasting and drinking in the Bible are always related to worship and gathering with other people. When they're connected to sadness and grief, it's always connected to foolishness. In the scriptures, when pain comes, comes. God's people are meant to fast and to pray and to seek him and walk with him and trust him and God brings resolution and hope and growth as we walk through hard places with him. Chapter 7 verses 5 and 6 it says it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. This is what Solomon is doing. He's trying to let you hear the rebuke of the wise. He says for as the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity meaning it's meaningless. And that's the pattern of chapter 7. I actually called this message I think sober minded vapor management. It's what does it look like to actually walk through this. Wise people will appreciate friends who love them enough to speak the truth about what they believe and also rebuke them in their sins. Foolish people always want to run around in herds with people who agree with them and say all the things that they want to hear and make them feel good. In this culture, when you couldn't find good firewood to stay warm, you could start a fire with thorns and they would crackle, but they wouldn't stay warm for very long. They'd burn up really quick and if you didn't have real wood, the fire wouldn't last. And that cackling, that is a fool's friend. (laughs) You're great. Isn't that sound annoying? <laughs> I call that the thumbs up on Facebook. You know, it's, uh, uh. Wise people pick their friends because they will speak honestly to them. In Proverbs, it reminds us that even our name and our lives, where Solomon starts these verses, it's actually connected to our friends as well. Proverbs 13, verse 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So who do you listen to for real advice in your life? Who do you trust enough to be able to speak hard words into your life? Who do you trust? Because we need those people. 
in my daily quiet time, almost every day, I get on my knees, and one of the things I pray for consistently is for you guys, that you would disciple one another. Not that you would know everything in the Bible, but you would walk through life with one another, teaching each other how to live in a way that our lives reflect who God is, how Jesus saved us and brought us to himself. I pray that for you. Every, you guys would live in the gospel. You would speak it to each other. I pray that for you almost every single day. But too often, what we want to do is we pick friends who say nice things to us. You buy that shirt that, that three sizes too small for you and say, oh, does this make me look big? And they say, no, you look great. It's like, what? What is that? And they think, oh, you must be my friend because you said really nice things to me. You thought I looked great. A real friend would tell you, don't muffin top it. That's what a friend would tell you, okay? That's what friends do. A, a real friend would say, buy clothes that fit. A real friend would say, drop that person you're dating because they're a loser. Don't marry that person because they're a loser. I mean, we must be careful because foolish people, we are always picking friends who legitimize our folly. Wise people ask to be told the truth and they listen. Oh, you're hurt my feelings. You must not be my friend. Holy junior high. Get over it, right? Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. In true friendship, we will sometimes say some things that are hard, but we should do it in grace and hope and truth. And sometimes telling the truth is hard because we know it's going to hurt. And that's why we do it with grace. We need people in our lives who are truth tellers. It's what wise people do. Chapter 7, verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. The NIV says it like this. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. Verse 8 says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. This is again talking about that death. What's the end of your life going to look like? And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. This is that foolish people and wise people can start off with even the same goals. But it gets hard and things didn't happen the way we wanted and the fools give up. And they walk away because it got hard. These verses tell you that wise people know that it doesn't matter where we start. It matters where we end. Your your past doesn't have to define all the rest of your future. And what we do is we look for what God is calling us into. We think about the day of our death and what we want people to know about our lives. If we want people to know who Jesus is and that we loved him and that's what we were about, well, then that's what we start living like today. We think about where we want to end and then you think, so how do I get there? Not that living that way is going to make Jesus love us more or anything like that, but it's wisdom to think about how to move to that point. Some people come to follow Jesus and everything in their life just falls into place. I'm highly jealous of those people when that happens. They're like, oh, look what Jesus did for me. And I'm like, great. You know? <laughs> but sometimes the opposite happens, though, and things get a lot harder. It, if it starts easy and gets harder, does that mean Jesus isn't working? No, that, that's life. It's like, I don't care you know, where you got married or how many photos you took or what you fed me if I was invited or if I stayed. You know, what counts is how are you treating each other you know, a year later, five years later, 10 years later, 50 years later? Are you still holding hands? Are you still forgiving? Are you still seeking the best of each other? It doesn't matter to me how big your child's first birthday party was and, and who came and all that. What I care about is what are they living like when they're a teenager, or their 20s, or their 30s, or when they're 80? What is the legacy of loving Jesus that we've handed to our children? And Ecclesiastes says, wise people are those who trust Jesus for the goal of godliness. It's about trusting him in all of our lives. Uh, there's this funny line in 1 Kings chapter 20. A foreign king comes into Israel. He's going to attack and try and destroy this area of Israel. And God has promised to protect Israel in this instance from this foreign invader. And in 1 Kings uh, 20 verse 11, the king of Israel says, One who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. <laughs> I mean, this is like, 
know what that means? It means don't brag before you won the battle because you might die in it. Brag after you, whatever. Okay, so you missed the point. Um, don't talk about what you're going to do in life. Just do it. I guess, I, girls, I will tell you, every guy is going to be a great husband on the second date because he's hiding who he is. Every woman's going to be a great mom before they actually have a baby. Wisdom knows to trust God faithfully in all circumstances. And that brings longevity. And so Solomon starts to look at how this then plays out for us in in this poem. And it's good for us to see. Verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. How, How do you not end where you want to end? Well, you get angry and you react all the time. When we have enough wisdom to see how we want to end, we begin to trust those around us to speak truth into our lives. We can find people who will help us to deal through a lot of our issues, like our anger management issues, so that we understand what our fragrance is supposed to be like. I've got Scottish heritage. Scottish people are typically of three phases, anger, drunk, and sleep, right? So you need people around you that are going to help you. Solomon reminds us that it's foolish people who just let anger lodge and simmer in their hearts. They're always just ready to react and fight at a moment's notice. And maybe that's fun when you're younger. I used to like to argue a lot more than I do today. The older I get, I'm like, that just seems like a lot of work. Like, my wife likes to watch sports more than I do. And sometimes we'll be watching baseball, and I'll watch, like, a fight, right? Like, a pitcher beams a guy with the ball. And, and it's like the, the guy throws his bat down, takes off his helmet, goes charging the mound. And every time I see this, I think, why don't you take the bat? <laughs> it would end so much faster if you took the bat. It seems like what you're doing is just a whole lot of work, right? But sometimes married people are like this. Provoke, 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 and then boom, it's like the 4th of July. It looks like so much work to me. Wise people control themselves, and if they have a hard time doing that, they find other people they trust who can step into their lives and help them. This is why we talk about gospel community element all the time. We need people around us. In a gospel community, not everybody's going to agree with one another, and that's a good thing. But hopefully we will love one another enough to tell the truth about what we think and how we feel. It's not a sin to be angry, but the fuse should be long and slow. Ephesians will say, in your anger do not sin, not don't get angry. There's a righteous anger. Jesus shows us when he chases the money changers out of the temple. I think God puts us in situations to teach us how to handle anger and grow. It's why I think God has allowed roundabouts to come into Santa Maria. Helps us to grow. Verse 10, he says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Again, he's again saying, look towards the end. Stop looking back to the beginning. Sometimes we get so stuck in the past, we will never move to the places God is calling us to. If you're always looking at the past, you're never going to look at how you really want to end. Like, like if, if you don't know it, um, sometimes uh, you don't always have to argue with your spouse the exact same way. What? It's true. It's like, we've been arguing like this for 20 years. Try something different. It might actually help. You don't always have to do the exact same thing the exact same way. You ever been to a church that's like so steeped in the past it won't change? Not, not in theology, but like in colors and robes and pews and hymnals and all that. The Bible says there are good old days. We call that Genesis 1 and 2. Ever since then, it's just been a series of bad days. Married couples are like, oh, I wish we could go back to our first date. I don't. My wife threw up on our first date. I think it was my fault. Oh, remember our first kiss? We smacked teeth on our first kiss. Donk! And I'm like, can we try that again? So, yes. Well, thank God I get a do-over, right? You know, that kind of thing. It's like, oh, remember our wedding night? It was so great. I've had better since, okay? I don't need to go back to those things. It should get better. Oh, I wish I could go back to when I was young. Do you remember puberty? 
I mean, holy cow, it's terrible. Fools are always looking in the past. Look at all these things. Wise people are looking, where do I want to end? Not what has brought me here, but where can I go with Jesus as we walk through life together? Where he's calling me to be? That's the question. We are a people who are called to walk forward in life with God himself. And sometimes when things are hard, we walk through those to go to a better place. We go suffering to joy, from grief to laughter. We go through life with Jesus, and that's wisdom. And so Solomon rounds out this poem like this. Uh, Verses 11 and 12, he says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. So again, this is under the sun, so this is in the life, those are still alive. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So in life, you essentially need two things, right? Money to pay bills and wisdom to get through it under the sun. That's, you know, before you die. This is a way of saying that wise people will see wisdom as important or more important than money. Because stupid people will get a whole lot of money and they will lose it to those who are smarter. It's like Gary Coleman ended up as a security guard at one point, right? Wisdom is meant to be your compass, trusting God for what is revealed. One commentator says, Wisdom enables you to navigate through the ups and downs of life with God so that you can embrace and enjoy each of the days God gives you and prolong your life. Which leads to the last verse, chapter 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who? God. Yes. Yes, he lands where we all must land. He says, who can make straight what he has made crooked? I know that sounds like a negative, but I think it's actually a positive. Who is the one who can straighten out our lives? God himself. A lot of fools try and straighten out their life, but they don't understand what life is really about. Uh, One person talks about it like it's like freeways, right? Most of us don't build the freeways. We just drive on the freeways. And when freeways turn, you got to turn. Or you're going to hit the K reel, so you got to turn with it. If the road is bent, you got to learn to take a left. It's like there's an old movie called Better Off Dead, and he's teaching this guy how to ski, and he goes, so go down the hill, and if there's a tree, turn. Right? Oh, yeah, th- that makes a lot of sense. This goes back to the beginning of everything. Life was straight. We sinned. We rebelled against God in our lives, and life became crooked as a result of our sin. But God leaves the crookedness there because God loves us. That's why it's there. And all of these hard things are out there to drive us into his arms. We realize that life under the sun is not all that there is. It is not just secular. It is not just nowism. It is not just under the sun. We don't need to be a people who have straight lines. We need wisdom to walk with God and navigate that crookedness. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 to 20 says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Everyone on this planet, and to varying degrees, is either wise or foolish. And all of us at some point are need some wisdom. And we get that by walking with God because people in our world today, they want joy. But there is no joy without wisdom. And there is no wisdom without Jesus. And there is no Jesus without coming to him and repentance of our folly. And this is the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus died to forgive us of our folly. To give us wisdom. To raise us new life. To bring us into relationship with him again. And that we can live in wisdom when we seek it from him. Colossians 2, 2 and 3 says that. If, if we are a people who are trusting Jesus for our salvation, he says, ask me every time you need wisdom, and I will give it to you. The thing is, we need to trust it and listen to it. And what's so, I don't like that. Well, 
we still trust it because it's his wisdom given to us. And we get to embrace every day of our lives as gifts from God's good hand. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And how do you get to the end? How do you get to a place where if you look down the end of your life and you think, I want my life to be one that honored Jesus, that people will say, that guy loved God more than anything else in his life. How do you do that? It's wisdom. Trusting Jesus for what he has given us. The, the whole idea of the gospel, that, that God has come to rescue us because we could not rescue ourselves. That his grace and his goodness has been spoken to us and over us. That he has given us the hope that we need, the life that we need, the restoration of relationship with him that we need. And in that, him first giving to us, we get to now live in the wisdom that he provides. And we can see the end and what it's supposed to be. And that end is not an end. That end is just a transition. Eternal life goes on forever. But we look at what we want people to know in the life that we have upon this planet. And so you work your way back from there again, not that you're working for God even though in one sense we are, but we're not working for our salvation. It's that we have been saved by God's good grace, that we have been offered hope and life again. And so we get to be a people who work towards that end simply out of thankfulness for God first loving us, for God first blessing us and giving to us. This is one of the reasons we go to communion every single week. It is a reminder that we lay down all of the wisdom that we think that we have that is opposite of what God calls us to, and we trust him for what he did. This is why you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Reminds us of the blood that was shed for you and me. That all that stood between us and God, God himself took care of. This is what we remember at the place of communion. That everything that separated us, all of our sin, all of our rebellion, was taken care of in the person of Christ. And God brings us back into relationship with him, and that changes everything. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. Like I said, there's going to be some deacons in the back. And if you need prayer, if you're in a place in your life today and you feel like you're just living very foolishly, or maybe you're in a place where you spent your entire life looking at your past and not what God's calling you to in your future, and you keep letting that define who you are, and you want someone to pray with you about that, they would love to pray with you about that. They would love to be able to speak hope and life over you. Not judgment, but hope of who God is and what he has done, and what God then continues to do in our lives, because he is good. There is offering boxes next to every door. We do not pass a plate at Element. Giving is always meant to be a response to what God has first done for us, so that's why it's there, and that's where you give if you want to. Uh, there's some donuts and stuff outside. You can grab, and some water flowing from the sky, uh, and you can grab uh, a donut, maybe take some sermon notes, sit down with some people this week in your gospel community, uh, and, or maybe just some friends, and walk through that. I mean, what, ask one another, what do you want the end to look like? If, if you're at your funeral, and you're, you're in a box, or in an urn, or whatever it is, or you went walking somewhere and they lost you, you know, what, what do you want people, what do you want people to remember about you and your life? Do you want them to say, oh, they were so great, oh, they were so wonderful? Or do you want them to say, man, they love Jesus? And that totally changed their entire life. That's what people to say about me. You know, because you can say a lot of horrible things. I can't believe some of the stuff he says from the pulpit. Well, okay, but did I love Jesus? Ah, I want to leave a legacy. I want people to know how good he is. And so we think about that and then work our way back from that so we live towards that aim to honor God in all that we do because God has first loved us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us and teach us what it means to truly live in wisdom. The wisdom that 
you teach us throughout the scriptures and the wisdom that you promise to give to us in those moments where we don't even know what to do. Father, sometimes we're so busy just talking at you that we cease to listen to you. And so I ask that you remind us to be a people who become still and know and listen for the things that you have said. And the times in our lives when it feels like everything is getting beyond us, that we would stop and we would ask you for wisdom and we would listen. And that would become more and more just part of our daily life and routine. Stopping and trusting you and listening to you. That we would understand that the source of our hope and our life are not things under the sun. It is our great God who has stepped into the realm of under the sun to rescue us, to bring us back into relationship with you again. And that we would have such a grasp on the good news of that that it would then change how we live. That we'd be a people who begin to live out in wisdom because we find it first in you. Father, that we would understand how you have first loved us and blessed us and given to us. But then that would begin to be lived out, looking for the place of how our lives can glorify you in all that we do as a great response to your great love first given to us. Teach us to be those who live in that great wisdom that you have taught us and your spirit continues to teach us. Have us glorify you in all things. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.